Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics of the day by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus, a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? It is going very well. I'm really excited about today's podcast, and I bet you are too. I am as well. We have a very special episode because we are going to be talking with... Jim Swift, who is the senior editor at The Bulwark. Um, He has worked on Capitol Hill. He has worked at The Weekly Standard. And in 2018, when The Weekly Standard ended, uh, folks went over to create and grow The Bulwark, which is a center-right news aggregating site. They have expanded into opinion, many a podcast, and a lot of really interesting, well-sourced well-formed commentary. So today, normally we we like to take one topic and look at it from a bunch of different angles. Um, But today we're going to do something different, which is speak exclusively with Jim Swift from The Bulwark about media today and conservatism today. And um, we're going to look at all of this stuff together. So I don't know about you, Lawrence, but I'm pretty excited about this. Me too. Let's go. Jim Swift, welcome to the show. Lawrence Daly, thanks so much for having me. So I am so excited that we have you. Thank you very much for coming today because I have been an avid Bulwark subscriber. So I want you to know that um, some of the decorations behind you, I undoubtedly have paid for uh, with my subscription money. And um, and membership I, money because we're a nonprofit. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and um, I have loved the way that you all have taken one idea and moved it in a whole bunch of different directions. And so one of the things that I think Lawrence and I really want to talk about is, first of all, we've we've discussed journalism in some depth, but we want to talk now about punditry and opinion in greater depth. And one of the things that the Bulwark does so well is that it is not just necessarily one opinion, but it's a lot of different voices coming in to discuss one side of something and also to judge the merits and um, value of having different voices heard and different opinions be heard. And so if you could talk to us a little bit about what you see is the most valuable thing in in a really good opinion analysis podcast or even piece of writing because your website is also so good. Like, what do you see as the value of good punditry and good opinion? So what I I wrote this to a 
I don't know. I When people write emails to us, we don't look to see if they give us money. We try and respond to every comer, whether or not they're a member of the Bulwark, whether or not they get our newsletter, whether or not they just found us on Twitter and wanted to you know, write us a question. And you know, someone asked, well, if you guys are all ostensibly conservatives, why are you publishing, you know, this like far left tripe? And, you know, it, it was an article by Richard North Patterson, who's a kind of like center left guy. I think what really um, is good for publications uh, in this day and age is to have uh, a diversity of opinions within, if you think of a bell curve, you know, within one one standard deviation of the mean or maybe two. Um, and the political universe has changed so much. Um, if you think of that uh, movie 2020 about, about climate change, where like the, the, the Earth's you know, polarity reversed and everything changed, we haven't really changed. But the, the, the political polar universe has, has changed so much um, that now we find ourselves kind of, you know, center right. And there are people on the center left who've seen um, what had happened to our party and are worried that, you know, th- those sorts of mistakes, compromises, you know, fate, whatever you want to call it, uh, could happen to them and uh, they don't want it. So, uh, I mean, that's sort of where the bulwark lies right now is everyone on staff pretty much used to work at the Weekly Standard. Uh, we brought on a couple um, other people. Um, who have been there in what we would call like, you know, the crystal universe of sorts. Um, and we also have left-leaning writers. I mean, I, I recruited Lois Lowry, um, the famous author. Uh, she's definitely not a Republican. And those aren't things we could have easily done at the Weekly Standard under our, our previous ownership. And it, it is nice and it is liberating um, that we can do these sorts of things. And um we brought the audience we still had with us um, from the weekly standard to the bulwark, but we also got to expand our audience and bring in people uh, like Lois Lowry, like Richard North Patterson, like Molly Jong Fast. And uh, it's, it's really, it's really been interesting and I get much less hate mail now than I used to two years ago. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you get less hate mail now? Probably because, we're less established. Um, I mean, we're, we're known among news elites. Uh, you know, we, we, we know people in our field, they know us. Um, but you know, the weekly standard had been around for 20 years and all of its, you know, main people, uh, went on Fox news or were Fox news contributors. And in fact, one of them, uh, has a nightly show that spews hate and misinformation, Tucker Carlson. And, you know, not our proudest legacy, but he was a fantastic magazine writer and um, people got to know us. And when it comes to information siloing, I mean, the people who live in the Fox News universe, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody asked me what so-and-so on Fox News was really like because they knew I knew them. And then two years later, they were calling me a Washington elite, like it was a bad thing. And I said, well, you used to like that about me. What changed, me or you? One of the things I've noted is that you have a diversity, not only of um, ideological input, but also in terms of age. And so um, one comment I get frequently from my husband is that I will play with 1990s rules. And that is because I'm Gen X and I think you probably are too, but I know that Bill Crystal and 
Charlie Sykes, I think, are more boomers, and and then um, JVL uh, and also um, uh, Tim are millennials. So, I mean, does does that play into it at all? Do you see that there is um, an ensuing diversity of opinion and perspective based on age and generation? JVL would love that you called him a millennial. Uh, he's <laughs> definitely a Gen Xer. I'm I'm technically a millennial, um, a little younger than Tim is. Um, in in terms of diversity, I mean, it's just as a side, you know, a lot of times we get emails saying we would like more people of color on your masthead, and I write back and I say I understand that. So would I, but you have to understand we're a conservative webpage and. The Republican Party is overwhelmingly white. And among that overwhelmingly white party, uh, we represent a very small faction of it is never Trumpers. So if you know any talented people of color, um, you know, be they white, black, Puerto Rican, Asian, you know, who are writers and never Trumpers, send them our way. We, we love them. The more, the merrier. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. I mean, acknowledging, you know, a, a, a kind of fault, uh, you know, maybe two, two by four in our eye. Um, but I think it's a diversity of experience um, that has uh, made the bulwark um, very interesting. Um, you know, we have Bill Crystal, who founded the Weekly Standard. He was Dan Quill's chief of staff, ran a magazine for 20 years. We have Jonathan Last, uh, considerably younger, who came in in the mid 90s as, you know, a recent college grad off from a, a he spent a year playing pickup basketball to write a book about it. And then the weekly standard hired him. So he never wrote the book um, and was there, you know, from, you know, nearly the beginning to, uh, to its end. Um, we have Charlie who ran his own magazines and was a talk radio host. Tim Miller is a, you know, longtime political flack and strategist. Um, my background before I joined the lucrative world of journalism, I worked on Capitol Hill for five years as a staffer, and I worked on campaigns uh, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just we kind of run the gamut of, 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 of experience from the guy who answered the phones, Jonathan and me, you know, in our early days to, you know, Bill Crystal, who's, you know, friends with Scoop Jackson and, you know, all the, you know, Bill knows everyone. And so, um it, it, it is, it, you know, Mona Charon, who's our policy editor, was a speechwriter uh, in the White House. We we come from a from a variety of of of, of age uh, levels and experience, um, but almost all of us have some sort of important experience that uh, we think slash hope uh, listeners and readers will uh, make it worth their time, uh, since time is money or actual money, um, to, uh, to, to pay for the extra stuff. Jim, can you define for our listeners where you see the bulwark fitting into the sort of the wider media landscape? When you think of all the outlets, you know, the hard news outlets, the ones that do original fact reporting, ones that do analysis, commentary, et cetera. Can you just kind of place the bulwark in that greater media ecosystem? Sure. I'd say we are mostly an opinion website. Uh, we do occasionally break news. Um, but when you look at the right wing ecosphere, it is mostly not about breaking news. It is mostly about uh, opinions and narratives. It's not to say that the Daily Caller doesn't commit random acts of journalism or National Review or Breitbart, uh, you know, or, or, or even the Federalist, uh, which is my least favorite conservative website that exists, maybe outside of American greatness, which doesn't break news. Most of these sites are part of a 
web where everyone knows each other and they're pushing things, uh, whether they are nonprofits or owned by billionaires that uh, are, are there to push the narrative. And that narrative feeds into Fox News. It now feeds into Newsmax and One American News, which, you know, five years ago when I was going on One American News, something I regret, uh, most people didn't know about it. Um, but while you're paying for Newsmax, One American News and Fox through your cable carriage fees, uh, you're, you're typically not paying for these web pages. And uh, they do do investigative journalism. I mean, it's, it, that's just an undeniable fact, but it is not typically their primary focus. Almost always, it's either opinion or narrative or media criticism because media equals bad, even though they're the media too. That's something that um, is obvious from their uh, their mission statements, right? I mean, if you, because I wrote a book about this, and if you go to their mission statements, they say, you know, our mission is to provide a counterpoint to the mainstream media, and that's doing something really different than what news organizations are there to do, which is journalism. So there's a little bit of, of that investigative reporting you're talking about, but just not a lot of it because it just doesn't really play in with what their mission is. Yeah. I mean, I think about the Washington Free Beacon as a good example. Uh, Lachlan Marquet uh, is one of the best investigative journalists out there. He ended up at the Daily Beast, and then I think he left for another publication. But he did amazing stuff at the Washington Free Beacon. Um, but, you know, as I referred to earlier with the kind of polarity shift and change and how conservative media has changed, it's not to say the Free Beacon doesn't do investigative journalism anymore. They do. Um, but, you know, I, I remember when Donald Trump won, uh, we had a lot of hate mail from subscribers who saw our covers of Trump and our covers were sort of famous for being kind of witty, irreverent cartoons, caricatures, that kind of thing. And they said, you guys would have never done this to Obama. And I said, well, hey, here are 79 covers we did of Barack Obama over the last eight years in a zip file. Let me know which one you think is closest. And when power, when power shifts between parties, uh, the right wing media adapts and uh, it, it, it goes from anti anti Trumpism or uh, just attacking the libs to, you know, nitpicking everything to death. And so, you know, I think we're seeing that change happen right now in real time. in a lot of these places, um, they're not willing to, you know, not everyone went totally Trumpism. Some of them just kind of defended it or uh, attacked the critics of Trump, including us. But now we're kind of seeing this shift back to, geez, it's like 2007 all over again. We care about the deficit. We care about the debt. You know, we care about all these other things. Geez, Saudi Arabia, those guys are bad. You know, North Korea, what are you going to do about them? I mean, don't forget Iran. Uh, uh, all, all the meanwhile, we had four years of Trump meeting with dictators and pissing off our enemies. At, and it's, it's frustrating to somebody like me uh, just to just to see it all because the cognitive dissonance or willful ignorance uh, is is uh, it does not speak well of the conservative uh, journalism movement. Conservatives have always been about owning the libs. Um, there was a larger portion many many years ago that did actually care about conservative governance, and it shrunk. And uh, I think you know if 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 you view the bell curve. And the extremes, so to speak, are the far right and the far left. And why does the far left, or at least maybe the center, like 
center to far left care more about, you know, uh, citizens for responsibility and ethics in Washington or these kinds of folks that, uh, uh, on the left care more about doing watchdog reports or FOIA and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, it's because that's what their base is interested in. And the right wing base is more interested in what consumer product can I throw off of my apartment balcony today because they uh, did something that was bad for Republicans. Is it a Nike shoe? Is it Keurig? You know, what is it? It's an outrage machine. And uh, I definitely knowingly played a role in that in in, in earlier years. Um writing about things. It's not to say I was unfair, but I, I knew what I was feeding into because it was for the clicks and it was for the subscribers. Um, and that's not what we do with the bulwark. Uh, so we've all, you know, some people call it the bull woke uh, or woke Bill Crystal. But um, I, I think once Donald Trump came onto the scene and uh, we saw how quickly people flipped the switch of this guy is bad, he shouldn't be president to now we're going to defend him. We're kind of like, what the heck is going on? And, uh, you know, then a couple of years later, our magazine gets murdered and cut up for parts. And then, you know, Bills, Charlie and JBL and me and others started the bulwark. Can I ask you about that outrage machine? Because there's been a lot of work um, in political science and sorry, communication done. Um, in that area. And there is a theory that on the right, the outrage is sort of distilled anger and, you know, fury. And on the left, that outrage is expressed through satire and humor. And that's why, you know, the late night comics, Colbert and, and John Oliver and, and Samantha B are, are still getting people really, really riled up. Whereas Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity are just playing it straight, but getting people really riled up. So, you know, you end up having both sides being very angry um, all at once. And and does the bulwark play into that a little bit in its focus on how poorly many Republicans have been behaving, starting with Trump and like going kind of straight through most of the Senate and the House and the caucus. It, it, yes, you're right about the the humor aspect. I mean, there's a there's a meme on the internet like conservatives are getting better at humor and it's making lefties nervous, um, which is not really true. I mean, the late Rush Limbaugh had a failed show on Fox News that was supposed to be a response to The Daily Show, and it was a, it was a total failure. Uh, I think the two fuel each other. Uh, it is it is cold. It is political cold fusion, because as good as a Colbert or a John Oliver or a John Stewart are at lampooning conservatives um, or even a Bill Maher. Uh, but most conservatives don't pay for HBO, I don't think um, the right then gets to point to this mockery and say, see, they hate you. And it fuels this sort of grievance and outrage. And it's 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 different types of outrage, right? Um, but the, the two feed off of each other. And uh it's been it's I think it's been interesting as new media has changed and uh Facebook, Twitter, to a lesser degree, Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. Um 
people are becoming more siloed. And so rather than seeing, when you think back to when it was just the big three, um, I mean, granted, we had the fairness doctrine back then. Cable didn't exist. People aren't seeing exactly what is being said by the people who allegedly hate them or disagree with them. They're only seeing it distilled through the people that they like. And um, that sort of process is turned into digital meth uh, for for people who, who want to be angry. And I and I sincerely believe that is, you know, a lot of people ask me, what can we do to deprogram, you know, my dad or, you know, my uncle or, you know, who, whoever. I, I'm not sure it's possible um, because, you know, like I, I went to college in Missouri. Meth's a big thing there. It's a hell of a drug. And uh, the, I don't think there's any grand design to this. It's sort of Hayekian and how Facebook and Twitter and right-wing media and left-wing media and everything else have just kind of existed. But the net result in the funnel of causality is that people get really good cuts of political meth and they don't want to do the research. Uh, They don't want to uh, go out and find if there's broader context or whether it was taken out of context. And, you know, it reminds me from like the Al Pacino scene from Sen of a Woman, Uh, you know, uh, you know, I was faced with the fork in the road and I always chose these road every time. Why? Because it was too damn hard. People are lazy. I don't know if it was Rick James or Dave Chappelle playing Rick James saying uh, cocaine's a hell of a drug. You know, I'm just thinking of that when I think when I hear you talking, you know, like social media is a hell of a drug. <laughs> well, I, I always thought it was heroin, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it might but, have been heroin. Yeah. Yeah. But but math is super addictive. <laughs> Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, in the 1980s, you know, late 1980s, I, I think there were some legitimate criticisms of the media. A lot of media institutions were in urban centers. And so maybe they were paying disproportionate attention to issues in those big cities and ignoring some of the issues in rural parts of the country. And so there was that um, a little bit of a liberal slant to the media. And there probably needed to be a correction, especially when it came to paying to paying attention to issues that were impacting um, you know, areas outside of cities. So can you guys both Jim and Allie, you know, you being a political scientist, can you talk a little bit about uh, the correction that was needed and that we should have had versus the dysfunctional inappropriate correction that, uh, that actually happened? I mean, I know that uh, accusations of liberal media bias actually go back much further than the 1980s. So maybe you guys could just comment sort of on the history of that accusation. Well, you know, I'm, Jim, I want you to weigh in here because um, I know that that starting in the mid 20th century, when there was the perception and to a certain degree, a reality of liberal media bias within the mainstream press, which, as you noted, is, you know, was significantly smaller, um, that conservatives really felt that their arguments were being shut out of um, commentary, shut out of news. And that was when William F. Buckley first started the National Review as as one effort to try and get a conservative voice out there. And then that, of course, increased, you know, human events and and other magazines. Um, And then when in 1987, in the Reagan administration, the, the fairness doctrine was was revoked, then that led to talk radio and having more conservative voices 
on that medium. And then you fast forward to the 1990s and Fox News is established kind of trying to copy the success of CNN, um, but doing it from a purposely conservative standpoint. And so as technology has furthered the media itself, so to have the efforts to try and bring more conservative voices in to this perceived liberal bias. And there's a foothold in the truth of, of this, but maybe not as, as dramatic as I think many conservatives would like for it to be. And, and Jim, I'm, I'm ready for you to tell me that I'm, I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. I mean, conservatives have, have long overstated uh, media bias and their victimhood. Um, but conservatives have always been good at setting up organizations uh, they've been good at, um, you know, kind of creating this own sort of siloed narrative. And, you know, to liberals, I would my criticism of liberals is liberals think of repeal of the fairness doctrine as, as akin to um, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Um, the financial markets of the, of the 1970s and 80s uh, are nothing remotely like the market of 2021. Same with our, our news media market. Uh, we could reimpose both of them today, uh, but it really wouldn't make a huge difference. And uh, folks on the left uh, have some ideas and folks on the right, like Josh Hawley. And I, I always found this ironic because conservatives uh, always, uh, and I, I wrote a piece about this at the Bulwark, always uh, you know, went after the fairness doctrine as just like the man holding us back. But now with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as part of the Telecom Act of 96, they're basically pushing for their own new fairness doctrine. Uh, they, they've just abandoned their principles. And so everything sort of blew up into this sort of diaspora, uh, whether you're talking about finance or whether you're talking about media. And um, we couldn't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And the reason why the fairness doctrine was repealed was because it largely was already beginning to be outpaced. The fairness doctrine did not create Rush Limbaugh necessarily. Um, you, can, you can make arguments since he was an over-the-air broadcaster that there was this, but the, these stations were already making changes. And you think back to there was that old network which failed called Air America. And uh, the liberals tried to do it. And you think of you think of Fox News trying to be an answer to CNN. Not everything requires a response, and you can't always manufacture the mirror image of what your opponents are doing. Um, I think uh, eventually Rupert Murdoch and people on the right, uh, and I should note Rupert Murdoch was the original funder of the Weekly Standard before it was sold to Philip Anschutz, the guy who murdered it. Uh, the right adapted. And they created all of these billionaire-funded blogs, and uh, that—that's sort of how they did it. I mean, you look at the Facebook data uh, in the last two years, and Ben Shapiro from the Daily Wire is one of the most widely cited, clicked, shared things on the site. I'm not saying that Mark Zuckerberg should, uh, you know, put his thumb on the scale or anything like that, but. How are we being silenced when you look at what is the most popular thing on Facebook? Um, I realize Twitter is for elites, um, but you know Facebook is used by pretty much everyone. I, I just I don't understand this focus, and this was the entire premise of this most recent CPAC in Florida on cancel on cancel culture. It's just not happening. 
uh, it's the marketplace responding to people doing unconscionable things or having really terrible ideas. And uh, if you don't want, con- if you know, Jim Jordan is asking uh, the House Judiciary Committee to have a, a hearing on cancel culture. If you don't want to be canceled, don't do stupid things. Josh Hawley didn't get canceled. He's someone's, someone's still going to publish his book. He's a U.S. senator. Private businesses. And think back, and this is a bit of a rant here. I'm, I'm turning in Dennis Miller here, turning into a rant. <laughs> but you think back, you know, fast rewind 10 years when it was the um, uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act and uh, gay couples getting, you know, service for a wedding or a bakery. And conservatives were all about private actors can do what they want. But now when private actors do what they want, it's cancel culture. Um, And, you know, that's sort of the big polar shift. I don't understand. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not provide blanket immunity to a cake baker to deny gay couple service. It only provides them a mechanism by which if they are challenged by some authority uh, to to say that, you know, doing X, Y or Z is an infringement of my religious rights. And that law was signed by Bill Clinton. Um, But the you know, it's just everything has just changed so rapidly. I don't think I've changed because, you know, I guess I'm a conservative curmudgeon, but everything else has changed. And I just look at my old party that I worked for in service to as a campaign aide, a volunteer, a staffer, state vice chairman of the College Republicans. I don't recognize it anymore. It's nuts. I mentioned the need in the late 80s for a correction in media, right? So if there are a lot of media institutions were focusing on issues in a certain part of the country and, and that part of the country had more liberal sensibilities and they weren't paying attention to rural areas, that kind of stuff. Like there was a correction that was needed, a diversity of perspectives, you know, more attention paid to the vast geography of the U.S. But, um, you know, the correction that we got was insanity, right? Like we, we needed uh, real news, but from a diversity of perspectives covering issues that affected all Americans, we didn't need crazy people, you know, talking about, you know, spreading disinformation like, you know, Tucker Carlson and Mark Levin. Mark Levin is not crazy, Lawrence. <laughs> I am here in my bunker beneath a nondescript building <laughs> underneath a major metropolitan city. And I worked in the Reagan Justice Department, sir. How dare you? How <laughs> dare you? I used to listen to Mark Levin when I would drive home from uh, working on the Hill um, I would listen to C-SPAN radio in the mornings because Washington Journal is like my favorite. Um, I always think C-SPAN is like Cable's apology for the rest of the hellscape that it's wrought. Um, but uh, when I would listen to Levin driving home, assuming we didn't have late votes, and sometimes I'd drive home with a coworker and at the standard, uh, it got to the point where I could complete Mark Levin's sentences because he's that predictable. Um, he's always been a little crazy. But Trumpism even took him crazier because uh, he was anti-Trump. And he, like Hugh Hewitt, who I'm friends friendly with, uh, like they all flipped the switch because their bosses told them jump. And they're like, well, how high? To an earlier point I made, these are people who want to be crazy. I mean, you worked at C-SPAN. Uh, people used to ask me, what is it like to work for a U.S. senator? And I said, OK, if you really want to know what it's like to work for a U.S. senator, get up early and watch Washington Journal and listen to the callers. And then once you get to the crazy caller, imagine that like there were 25 people who are far crazier than this person who didn't make it past the screener. That's what working on Capitol Hill is like, because it's just totally unfiltered. Um, And uh, 
when you do a three hour news show, you typically do an hour of prep for every hour of show you do. I mean, I, I'm the producer of a couple of podcasts we do at the Bulwark. Um, I'm not the host. Sometimes I, I have to be, or sometimes I'm the guest, but I still have to do a bunch of prep, you know, for, for an hour long show, pulling clips, making sure quotes are, you know, properly annotated in the show notes, that sort of stuff. And uh, it's just people, people who are just so interested in this, that's what they want. And an over-reliance. And I think part of something that is also kind of steered, you know, like licking your finger and sticking up to see which way the wind is blowing is these, these conservative talk radio hosts will take these calls, rush had open line Friday, and they cater to the crazy and they, they get a sense of where their audience is. And, you know, Joe Walsh, the guy who ran former one-term tea party congressman who ran for president uh, briefly, uh, had a radio show before uh, he ran, and now he has a podcast. And I consider Joe a friend. He comes on our show a lot. He's a, I hated him when I was a Hill staffer, and I told him this. Like I hated his guts. I just didn't, you know didn't think he was serious. But he eventually saw the seriousness of all of this, and he had his come to Jesus moment, uh, as a lot of us in the Never Trump camp have. And uh, you know he had to fight his callers. How usually Rush would set up like, you know, have sturdily set some liberal through so he could just smite him and be like, oh, we'll be right back. And then seven minutes of commercials. Joe Walsh had to like in his last days as a talk radio host, had to fight with his listeners uh, before he lost a show. And, you know, now he gives zero Fs because, you know, he has a podcast and is accountable to no one. And that's sort of the, the beauty now of. Of, of how, how conservative journalism, or at least never Trump conservative journalism has grown. Um, but I think the audience tends to, you know, steer these, a lot of these hosts back in line because they're dependent on advertisers. They're dependent on Mike Lindell. They're dependent on pro flowers, you know, or extends the natural male enhancement. I mean, you name it. I mean, whatever sorts of bottom of the barrel scrapers want to advertise on AM radio, I was thinking about how, um, so the Weekly Standard was founded by Fred Barnes and Bill Crystal and John Podhoritz, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So I was thinking about how Bill Crystal and John Podhoritz are the children of the founders of neoconservatism yes. and how those neoconservatives, to include their spouses, Gertrude Himmelfarb and Mitch Dechter, had been... Um, very much on the left and became more conservative, particularly as they saw the threats of um, tyranny and the, the threats of fascism um, after the Holocaust and, you know, the fear of big government. And they changed very much with their ideas of what the government should be and what people should be afraid of. And I find it interesting now that as Crystal is getting a lot of flack for his work with you, that it feels like it certainly isn't coming around full circle, right? I mean, he's he's not a liberal by any stretch of the imagination, but he's doing what his father had done, which is to decide what it was the role of government was and, you know, put his money and his efforts where his mouth was. And, and I wonder if that is something that is discussed in your office that, uh, you know, that these, um, that this former neocon, you know, who's the scion of the neoconservative movement is 
moving away from that and, and moving towards something different in a very sort of mirror image of what his dad did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think his Bill's father, Irving, um, uh, has the famous quote that, you know, mugged by reality. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if, if you thought of yourselves as Republicans who were mugged by Trump. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I tend not to think about muggings as I was actually mugged in high school on, on a public train. So don't want to have terrible flashbacks to get my nose broken. Um, Bill posted a article, an article yesterday uh, that we called The Facts of Life, which was kind of a, a throwback to Margaret Thatcher. And uh, the deck or subhead, as we called it for, for, for this item, was the country takes priority over conservative naval gazing. And when we were talking about what we wanted to call the, uh, the article, basically it boils down to there are a lot of people on the right who aren't Trumpy. They aren't anti-anti-Trump, but they also think that the Democrats are just as bad as the Republicans. And our sort of thought is, are we watching the same movie? Um, That I don't think we are. (laughs) And so Bill kind of responded to some critics. Uh, It was Jonah Goldberg from The Dispatch, which is edited by Steve Hayes, uh, who was a longtime Weekly Standard uh, writer, who was the last editor when when the magazine got shut down. Um, And the the headline I wanted for it, you know, it was a little bit more Catholic, you know, faith, faith without uh, faith without works is dead. And um, I, I think you're seeing sort of a. Uh, a break uh, in never Trumpism uh, now that Biden is one. Do we work with them or do we just kind of pretend like Trumpism never happened? Do we revert to, oh, geez, the deficit, the debt is the threat. You know, like, can we just ignore those last four years? I, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, Bill's argument is we should want Biden to be successful. There are two major political parties, and it's clear that the majority of people in one of them uh, are not uh, are not big believers in democracy. They wanted to overthrow an election. Uh, can you really reform those people? Why don't we have people of good faith and sound mind work with the people who uh, do believe in our dem- democratic republic? Um, you know, work for the betterment of our country. We're not going to get everything we want. I mean, all the never Trumpers who, like me, who, who voted for Biden, you know, Biden didn't bomb Syria to please the neocons. He did it because it was the right thing to do. And he's going to do a ton of things we're going to disagree with. And that's fine. Um, you know, our argument was about the, the, the broader health of the body politic, uh, our, 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 our country's political health and uh, and, and discourse. Um, and unfortunately, Trumpism is, is not only taken root. I mean, it's, it's, it's like bamboo. It's just, you know, it's, it's grown and it's metastasized like a, an invasive species. And, um, you know, to those who think that, you know, we can still, uh, reform this party, I, I say good luck. Um, but you know, we're, we still consider ourselves conservatives and maybe not all of us consider ourselves Republicans, but, um, you know, to the extent we have agency, we're, we're going to criticize the right when we think that they've gone wrong. And we'll, we'll also criticize Biden, too. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think you're seeing sort of a fracturing of this. 
um, as you see after, as I said earlier, every change in power, um, because you know what, the, 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 the clicks and the traffic uh, are there to just attack the left. And that's what 98% of conservative media is going to do. Uh, the remaining 2% might be ARC Digital, the Dispatch, and the Bulwark. You know, you mentioned this idea that a lot of folks who are conservative maybe think that, well, you know, our, our side has its problems, but the left is just as bad. But I mean, it's pretty obvious that the right is the, you know, that the Republican Party is the party of Trump. But, you know, to characterize the left as the party of AOC or Bernie, I mean, I, I don't think that's true if you look at the data and, you know, that the, the left didn't nominate AOC or, you know, Bernie to be president, they nominated Joe Biden. Well, and, and not only that, um, you know, I, I don't mean to keep quoting myself, but earlier I said, not everything needs its own answer or carbon copy. Not everything needs its own mirror. This last cycle, Republicans gained a couple seats in the House. Uh, they basically had a, a handful of people who just kind of called themselves their response to the squad. And lo and behold, they are way crazier than the squad. I mean, look, I think AOC is a talented and brilliant politician that I might agree with on maybe 5% of things. Um, Rashida Tlaib, not as much of a fan. Um, but like we have Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Uh, it's just sometimes the metronome of politics and trying to replicate things that they can that the other side that one side considers a success on the other side tends to uh, exacerbate things. And uh, so our, our new squad of, of, of young crazies is uh, I would say uh, crazier on the opposite end of the bell curve, but I don't know what happens when you get to the end of the bell curve. Yeah. I'm just not sure that I buy the idea that both parties are, the same type of extreme, right? I mean, uh, it's clear that Trumpism is popular among most of the Republican Party. But I can't say that like AOC and Bernie are the Democratic Party. You know, Joe Biden was their their candidate. Perhaps it's a broken metronome that's not swinging as far to the left, but swinging even crazier far to the right. Um, it's and, and I think, you know, the, the argument you're making, it makes perfect sense. They're trying to uh, project onto uh, the left. And I, I mean, I, looking, I have political mailers here, uh, you know, from, from people who want to be Virginia's next governor. And I, I just kind of save all of these things because they're comical. And uh, they're not attacking Biden uh, that hard so far because he's not a boogeyman. But AOC and, you know, Presley and, 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 and Ilhan Omar and others are. Um, it's just that's sort of the rights go to playbook uh, is, is find the villain. And <laughs> I remember it, it's interesting you bring up how Trump has kind of taken the it of the party. I remember birtherism and what a fringe it was in the in the. 2007, 2008 time when I worked on the Hill and this crazy Dr. Orly Tates, who's like the birther queen, like came to our office and demanded a meeting. And the staff assistant called me and was like, I have this woman, Dr. Orly Tates, she wants a meeting. And I'm like, nope, kick her out. Don't, nope, we're not meeting with her. That has been like injected directly into the bloodstream of the Republican Party. And it used to be like every party has conspiracy. Both parties have their kind of conspiratorial fringe. We've embraced it. Look at it. 
birtherism begat QAnon and a large percentage of our voters believe in QAnon and it's totally insane. Uh, and around that time, I mean, it was, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the weather underground, um, guy's name, Bill Ayers, uh, you know, Bill Ayers and then rules for radicals there. They literally just saw that and they're like, we're going to adopt rules for radicals. And basically now the GOP is like a QAnon weather underground of crazy. But I also think that there is something coming on both sides, which is the idea of the existential threat. And, you know, when that threat is there, then there's going to be more attention paid to, you know, what are those threats? So for the right, the threats are AOC and the squad. And for the left, for the last four years, it's been Trump. And now that former President Trump isn't going away, it's still going to be Trump because the, you know, the Madison Cawthorns and the um, Marjorie Taylor Greens of the right adhere to not only a Trumpy playbook, but also the man himself. And so there's there's really kind of an and equal, we, we could, you know, discuss how serious the threats are. And I think that for those of us who are deeply concerned about what happened on January 6th, um, we see what, what the real existential threats are. But by continuing to, to go to that well, both sides are really, really fired up. And I think to no small extent, scared and perhaps appropriately in some cases. Yeah. I mean, in conversations I've had with friends and family, there's this sort of whataboutism that exists between BLM slash Antifa, because Republicans like pairing them together so they don't appear as totally racist. Um, but, you know, the black community has legitimate concerns. And while I don't condone violence or uh, property destruction or anything like that, the, compar the comparison of riots in Portland, for example, or other places uh, where black men or women have been uh, un apparently unjust unjustly you know, killed by police is nothing like ransacking the Capitol. Uh, one person I talked to talked about riots that they had in my hometown of Cleveland. And there's a historic grocery store called Heinen's that, you know, built a downtown location in this old bank. And it was, you know, it was looted. And I said, well, you know, last time I checked, that wasn't the seat of government and they weren't actually conducting the electoral college votes. Making those comparisons to me is uh, totally insane. The, the difference between the extremes on the left and the right is uh, I think that Black Lives Matter and Antifa have legitimate grievances and the people who are members of QAnon do not. Um, in the case of Black Lives Matter, I mean, mostly they're black people. I mean, they have white allies, Hispanic allies, Asian allies and whatnot. But, you know, it's a neighborhood that is standing up for a injustice uh, that, that occurred in their community or one that occurred elsewhere and that they're 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 tired of being mistreated. Uh, Antifa, they don't like fascists. Uh, I don't condone Antifa's uh MO of, of, you know, trying to fight with the Proud Boys or whatnot. It, you know, nothing good happens after midnight, as my mom always said. But with the QAnon folks, they come from all walks of life. 
but there's no legitimate grievance. It's just that they're crazy. That's the difference. Uh, legitimate, legitimate differences being channeled into suboptimal outcomes versus crazy choosing the what they think is the optimal outcome. And you know, I think that's what really separates the kind of uh, debate right now. And you wonder why the right wing people prefer you know crazy disinformation artists. That's why. Want to know why leftist kind of kind of folks will listen to Pacifica Radio or um, NPR, which you know I'm not I'm not equating the two, but like why do they care more about these sorts of things is because NPR is going to do a deep dive on why a black guy was murdered by a cop. Uh, on the, on the right, it's going to be some total BS that Ilhan Omar, uh, has, you know, this sham marriage to bring her brother in from, you know, Africa or something. Uh, that's, that's just, that's, that's what separates the motivated kind of far elements of both bases is, one cares more about facts and maybe channels them in a way that is not good, at least when it comes to violence. And then there's a far right base that does not care about facts and wants to channel these sort of white grievances and, and other sorts of things into violences because they think JFK Jr. is going to parachute down from heaven and, uh, you know, come bring the second coming of Christ. If JFK Jr. did parachute down from heaven, that would be my second coming of Christ, actually. I'd be pretty happy about that. W Magazine is coming back. Oh, my God. That's the dream. That's the dream. Don't don't tease me like that. Um, what do you read? Like, when you wake up in the morning, what is your media? What's your media diet? What's your go-to? Who do you think does the best reporting? So... My wife looks askance at this, but I spend an inordinate amount of money on um, subscriptions to magazines and newspapers and web pages. Uh, and every morning when I wake up after I walk the dog, I, I have to put together the Bulwark's aggregator, kind of like picks of the day um, of, of, of stories that I, I think are interesting. Um, I read uh, National Review, which I've come to disagree with more in recent years. Uh, I read commentary, which now is edited by John Puthortz, co-founder of the Weekly Standard. Um, I read the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I read Bloomberg Businessweek, The Economist, um, Current Affairs, Reason Magazine. Um, geez, who, who else am I leaving off? Wired. Um, and um, I also read um, on sports. I read Defector and The Athletic and Defector. I, I feel like a kindred spirit of theirs because they all quit in solidarity when their corporate media owner uh, started jerking around with them and they all just said, screw it. We'd rather not work here anymore. And then they started their own kind of like blog, like Deadspin that was uh, founded and owned and owned by them. Um, and, you know, I, and I love paying for these things. Uh, but I also read local newspapers. I read, you know, Inside Nova, which is the weekly uh, Northern Virginia paper where I live. Um, and then, uh, of course, I get the uh, Novak Rural Cooperative magazine because I live in a rural area and I have a rural electric cooperative and they have this adorable magazine with all these like local interest stories about the Winchester Cider Works and everything else. Um, but I would tell your listeners, I mean, if they're already listening to you, I'm sure they pay for media. But if you're not paying for it, you're typically the product, right? Um, that's not That's not always true. Um, but it's mostly true. 
Um, and that's a huge problem with right-wing media is that most of these sites don't charge and you wonder why. Uh, and they have comment sections and they have pernicious, obtrusive ads and interstitials and everything else like that. Um, but when we started the bulwark, we were like, look, we don't have to respond to corporate anymore. We don't have to fight them tooth and nail over ads or interstitials or pop-ups or pop-unders or all this other kind of stuff. Cause that only pisses consumers off. And so, you know, when we started the bulwark, we only had three months of funding. And so we signed up knowing that in three months we might not have jobs that turned into a year, which turned into two. And then we found out last fall that, you know, we'd raised enough money from, from, from donors, small and large to, to go for another two. And so we, decided we we're going to put some of that money to use and expand and hire some more people and do some more podcasts and things like that. Sarah Longwell, our publisher, is doing one on the French Village and uh, never watched that show. I'm probably never going to watch that show. But uh, when she announced that she wanted to do this, uh, my email inbox lit up. So apparently a lot of Bulwark leader, readers like the French Village. Um, or they just like her. <laughs> I'm not, I'm never going to watch it either, but I'll listen to that podcast. I love her. Oh yeah. Sarah's great. Uh, and so, uh, we, we've, uh, you know, we, we've just seen this sort of dedication, um, from our, from our audience and they've been very generous. Um, I consider this probably my last job in journalism, so I'm going to enjoy it for as long as it lasts. What do you want to do next? I don't know, maybe open up a little Caesars franchise or, you know, be a shift manager at a grocery store. Um, I mean, I'm not going to become a Democrat and I'm not optimistic that the Republican Party is going to have any return to normalcy anytime soon. Um, you know, I'm not going to run for office and the president of my HOA and I hate it. And, uh, you know, like, why would I want something that's like way worse than 169 houses? Um, you know, people fighting over fences and dogs, um, you know, it's, it's, it's way easier than being, you know, like a county official or a state rep or something like that, because governing is hard and Republicans long understood this. And they, I think have made a conscious choice that they don't want to do it. Like Ted Cruz doesn't want to be a Senator anymore. He, do, he doesn't want to do his job. I mean, he went back to Texas to put water in someone's trunk it's like a layover between Cancun and CPAC and uh, governing is hard. I mean, I, I saw that when I worked on the Hill, having people cry in your office or cry on the phone to you, it sucks. And um, you know, they, they, they almost want to be their own new media. I mean, Ted Cruz has a podcast, you know, a lot of these other guys are creating podcasts because that's what their new media consultants are telling them. They'd rather be pundits than politicians. Um, and, you know, that's not like, I don't mind competition as a pundit, but uh, I don't want to be a party that, that doesn't want to, that doesn't want to govern. It doesn't want to legislate. That doesn't want to make serious efforts to compromise, to fix these sorts of things. Uh, and the really very real struggles that our country is facing. All right. We won't hold you to this. We won't track you down in the future and say, see, you were right or see, you were wrong. But um, what do you predict the future of the Republican Party is? I don't know exactly what it is, but Republicans have long said that the difference between Democrats and Republicans is that Democrats always stick together. But I always think that this has been projection. Republicans tend almost always tend to stick together. I mean, there, there are 
examples of, of, of areas where there have been disagreement and, you know, Harriet Myers, the nomination of Harriet Myers to be a Supreme Court justice might be a good example. Weekly Standard fought against it. My old boss, John Kyle, led the effort behind the scenes. Um, but Republicans, I think, tend to stick together more, as we've seen in the last two impeachments and uh, and, and other sorts of things. And we'll probably see if they you know, pursue other options to deny Trump the ability to hold office in the future. Uh, I don't see the party splitting apart. I just see it continuing a downward spiral into craziness. And, you know, I, I look at Ohio, where I'm from. Josh Mandel was my mentor in politics. He was my first boss in politics when I was 16 years old. He's running for Senate again. I don't recognize the guy. I've known him since 1999. Um, Anthony Gonzalez, a congressman from Ohio's 16th district. I went to high school with him. He was a year behind me. We're not friends, but you know, I knew him in high school. He was a talented athlete who went on to play at Ohio State, was a national champion, played in the NFL. He was one of the Republicans who voted for impeachment of Trump. And now we're just seeing the party turn on him. Now, I don't know what the bizarre obsession is with censure, like censure means anything or anyone cares, uh, but it is a symbol of what this party really believes. And these state parties uh, are governed by kooks. Um, in Virginia, you know, um, we haven't had a statewide elected Republican in a decade. And, uh, you know, they, they used these bizarre in-person conventions to get rid of Denver Riggleman, who also voted for impeachment. Um, and now they're going to be doing it for the gubernatorial election. And guess where it is? Liberty University. So if I, as a Virginia Republican, want to vote in my state party's convention, I have to drive to Lynchburg which I'm not going to do because it's, you know, a choice between a crap sandwich and, you know, a, a poop burger. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to swear like we do on the Bulwark podcast. I don't want to give this an E for explicit rating. Um, but where does that leave someone like me? I mean, Virginia is an open primary state. I can vote in either primary. I voted for Joe Biden in the primary because the Republicans didn't have one because they wanted to, you know, bow down to the orange God King. My goal as a voter who's not going to become a Democrat is to save either party from nominating someone who is extreme. So if the Democrats have two sane people and the Republicans have a sane person and an extreme person, I'd vote in the Republican party for the, for the sane person, not saying I vote for him in the general, but if the Democrats had the same sort of thing where it just, I'm going to vote against extremism and that's just kind of where I am. So I still consider myself a Republican, but uh, I would say that I'm in the anti-extremism camp and uh, I'm going to use my vote as best I can to save either party from nominating someone who is bad for our county or our state or our country. Jim, I've always wondered this. When you think about all the people who have sort of publicly come out against you that used to be cool with you and now aren't cool with you anymore, you know, what percentage of those folks do you think are doing that, you know, sort of performatively and what percentage are truly just done with you? I'd say 90% are truly done with me. Um, there are some people who know it's all an act, but I mean, they know that I know that it's an act and, you know, ultimately friendships are about respect. And, um, if somebody knows that, uh, I know that they're just play acting or cosplaying, uh, you know, for whatever it is, their job. I think they know enough about me to know that I no longer respect them. 
Um, and so is that person still my friend? I mean, I might still talk with that person periodically. Um, but, um, I didn't get in the business of politics to make friends. Uh, I mean, politics is typically, as they say in the old cliche is more about addition than subtraction. Um, but keep in mind, William Buck, William F. Buckley, uh, when he was, you know, trying to purge the Birchers, that was about subtraction. And, uh, I think a large part of what we do is trying to be part of the subtraction equation. Um, you know, I never got invited to a lot of Georgetown cocktail parties. I live near Quantico now, so I, I wouldn't even make the trek because, you know, you don't drink and drive and the, and the VRE doesn't run late at night. But uh, we're not doing this because we want to be liked by liberals. Um, we found some new allies and I've made some new friends, but I've lost far more. Um, and um, that's unfortunate. But in political journalism and politics as a staffer or as a politician, the term friend is also kind of suspect. I, I, that's why I would say friendly. I describe myself as a member of the media, not necessarily a journalist anymore because I'm nearly all opinion. Uh, sometimes I will write something that is, you know, capable of being qualified as journalism uh, is properly understood. But um, it's just one of these sorts of things where uh a lot of times in politics, people confuse professional relationships and connections with personal friendships. Sometimes people think they're your friend when you don't consider them that. Uh, sometimes, like, you know, friendship is like dating, like, you know, when you're friends with someone, right? Um, but, you know, in Washington, it's a lot of times people give you their business card and it's sort of like unwanted. And it's like, hey, thanks. Gonna, you know, put this in the free lunch thing from the financial advisor later at Panera and you're going to get a call. Um, but there's been a, I think, a huge change in the sort of social order of Washington. Um, and a lot of the people that I used to see at social events and, uh, you know, talk to professionally are now friends with like fringe conspiracy theorists. And uh, I hope they're enjoying it. Um, I'm just happy not to have to deal with it. And some of them, some of my former friends and former coworkers have become fringe conspiracy theorists. Um, it's, it's, it's been very disheartening. Um, and that's why, you know, as I said earlier, I think this is probably my last job in journalism because I don't think CNN is going to hire me after I made fun of their food fight panels. First of all, where do you see the bulwark going in the middle and distant future? And then I guess I also want to know what you think of to be good analysis, opinion, and punditry versus dreck. Versus what? Uh, garbage. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of people, and you know, this goes to Lawrence's question earlier, uh, that I maybe used to be friends with, would sort of joke on Twitter like, geez, Biden won. What is the bulwark going to do now? And I was just like, okay, well, you know, if we if we shut down tomorrow, I mean, we, we, we didn't create this venture to elect Joe Biden. We, we created it because uh, we cared about the future of the Republican Party, the future of the country, and the future of the Democratic Party. And we we're just trying to encourage people to be rational and sane, um, you know, and, and, and basically centrist. Um, because Joe Biden won, uh, thankfully, that means I can spend less time worrying about who I have to book on my podcast tomorrow or on the podcast tomorrow for Charlie 
because you know you can't pre-book people in the insane Trump era. We've we've had some sort of normalcy there, um, but as you saw from the CPAC straw poll, Trumpism is not going away. Um, and you see what my old mentor Josh Mandel is doing. Uh, you know, he I thought like went into hibernation like a bear and was going to come out and use his you know millions of war chest from his aborted second Senate run to like come back and pretend to be Marco Rubio from 2006. Uh, boy, was I wrong. Um, so we're going to spend a lot of time on combating Trumpism. Uh, I don't think we want to spend much time on Trump himself, but uh, it is unavoidable. You know, you can't have Trumpism without Trump. And, you know, Don Jr., Lara, Eric, Ivanka, Jared Kushner, that kind of stuff. Um, and we're also going to try and uh, push the Republicans, all 27 of them, uh, who are normal. And it's it's a former Senate and House Republican staffer. It's just it's insane to me that there are only 27 people that I'm kind of like, OK, they're good. Um, you know, out of what? Geez, it's like 100. It's almost 200. Of, right. 27 out of like 200. Um uh, push them to work on sensible things uh, for our country. And uh, when we think Joe Biden is uh, is, is overreacting or uh, doing something wrong, we're going to say it too. Um, you know, people always misunderstood that about the Weekly Standard, that we, we were considered a party organ because of Bush and our closeness with the Bush people. Um, but then we criticized Obama for eight years. And then when Trump came, we criticized him too. Uh, I mean, I've read the Weekly Standard since 1998 uh, until, you know, 2018 when we all got fired. And I understood that this was not a publication that always towed the party line. And I think that's great. Um, now we can't really tow the party line because, well, one, there isn't one because they're not interested in legislating, really. Uh, and two, uh, you know, we are out enjoying a nice walk through the big wilderness. Um so uh, we have a lot to write about. And as we've grown and expanded the site, you know, uh, we're, we're doing podcasts about uh, other things. And we hope to get into book reviews and culture like we did at the Weekly Standard uh, and that, you know, a lot of people liked. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, to our next, uh, you know, next couple of years. Uh, we're, we're not going anywhere. Um, thank you so much. That was really fantastic. Yes. Thank you, Jim. We really appreciate you taking time to come on our show. I appreciate you guys making the time and, and having us on and being so nice to the bulwark. And um, hopefully I didn't say anything too offensive or was not too much of a jokester. <laughs> of course not. Thanks, Jim. Well, I thought that was great. I, I loved speaking with Mr. Swift. And I also like uh, mixing things up a little bit here at Utterly Moderate, you know, throwing a little curveball for our listeners to do something a little different. Absolutely. We typically like to take one topic on an episode and give people a good overview of the facts. But every once in a while, it's nice to switch gears and just do an interview with an interesting person like Jim Swift, who can give us insight into different jobs and different experiences. So that was pretty fun. Before we go, we want to remind you that not only can you find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but also at our website, utterlymoderate.com. The website has the added advantage of the archive, where you can not only find each episode, but a trove of companion resources for those that want to take a deeper dive into the topics that we cover. 
Thank you to our listeners all over the United States and 14 other countries across the globe. We are deeply appreciative of your support, and we hope that you'll join us next time. Bye, guys. Please listen carefully. 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 Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.